Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. It is that time of year when we are bombarded with different uh, expectations for 2017. People are so uh, optimistic and potentially wary about some of the risks and pitfalls ahead. We have Jim Paulson, Chief Investment Strategist and Economist at Wells Capital Management with $351 billion under management here with his uh, expectations for the year ahead. Um, Jim, you know, I want to start out with one particular expectation of yours, which is that the U.S. dollar surprisingly weakens. This is what uh, our, our analyst, our FX analyst, Vince Signorella, was talking about earlier in the program. So, Jim, why do you think that we're going to see a weakening in the dollar? Well, I think the primary reason, Lisa, that there's such a strong consensus about the dollar going straight northward here is because the Fed's going to raise interest rates, which I totally concur uh, that that's going to happen. And if you look back since 1970, during the five previous recovery cycles, every time the Fed uh, embarked on, a, on raising interest rates during the recoveries, the dollar declined. It didn't go up. It came down. And I think it's going to happen again this time as the Fed commences on a tightening cycle. And the reason, I think, is because you have to look at why they're raising interest rates. Interest rates are not don't go up in isolation. If that was the case, if the Fed just raised rates and nothing else happened, that'd be great for the dollar, bring in foreign capital flow. But almost always the Fed starts to raise interest rates because they're concerned about inflation. And rising inflation is a, a huge negative for the U.S. dollar, destroying the purchasing power globally. And usually when the Fed's involved in a tightening cycle, it means that inflationary expectations are rising, there's concerns about being behind the curve, and the dollar is sold. Jim Paulson, tell us your thoughts about treasuries, specifically the 10-year, and then also when I get your ideas about wage inflation and consumer inflation, maybe some numbers. Yeah, uh, Pim, I, you know, I, I think that we've got a backdrop as we head into this year, not only of a pickup in U.S. Uh, growth, you know, the reports just keep coming in every day a lot better than expected, and we're probably going to do 3% growth this year in the United States. But we got to pick up around the globe. The manufacturing and commodity price recovery is happening everywhere. And I think we've got one of the rare synchronized bounces in global economic activity going on as we head into this year. And it happens to come at the precise moment that the U.S. has finally returned to full employment in this recovery for the first time. So we're going to see the first acceleration on full, fully employed economy. I think wages are going to uh, go up quite a bit in the next year, maybe 35 to 4% year-on-year by the end of the year. I think headline and core inflation, maybe CPI, move towards 3 and I think that's going to be a very uncomfortable situation, both for the Federal Reserve and for bond vigilantes. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if we see the 10-year yield spike about three and a half to three and three quarters at some point during the year. You know, there was a, an article 
article earlier this week on the Bloomberg uh, citing Paul Schmelzing. He's a PhD candidate at Harvard University mm -hmm. who said, looking back over eight centuries of data, I find that 20, the 2016 bull market was indeed one of the largest ever recorded. History suggests this reversal will be driven by inflation fundamentals and leave investors worse off than the 1994 bond massacre. So in other words, he's predicting uh, a pretty dire circumstance this year for bonds. Do you agree? Well, you know, I, I do in this sense that, you know, um, we pegged free market prices throughout the United States history. We pegged the dollar, you know, much uh, early post-war period. We pegged gold at $35 an ounce. The Fed regularly pegs the funds rate in the implementation of monetary policy. But we have never, I don't think, in the history of the United States, uh, exercised this massive of an artificial pegging of an important free market price. We're not just pegging the short-term interest rate. We're pegging the entire sovereign yield bond curve uh, across from cash to 30 years. And we're doing it not just in the United States, but we're doing it all over the globe. This is the mother of all pegs. And we are finally, the elephant is going to lift off that peg. And in the balance of this recovery, we're going to start the process of the great unwind of that artificial price setting. And I think because rates have been low for so long, because we've developed a population and culture worried about deflation, reversing that suddenly is going to be shocking for most participants, including uh, bond and stock investors. And I do think there's going to be some pain associated with the unwind of uh, this great yield peg. Jim, I want to continue with your animal theme, perhaps even animal spirits theme. You say that we are going to enter or are in a bunny market. It's not a bull. It's not a bear. It's a bunny market. Well, how do you profit from a bunny market? What do you invest in and what do you stay away from? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, I, I think that the reason I say a bunny market is because I, I think a bear market, Pim, is not likely until the next recession. And I don't see that happening this year or maybe for the next few years. So I don't really think we're in a bear. A bull market, a lot of the foundation of this bull has already been spent. Uh, we can't take P multiples from 10 to 20 again. We've already done it. We can't lower yields from 6% to 1. We've already done it. Uh, we're, we can't have chronic disinflation. We're going to deal with inflation-challenging valuation levels. We're going to have to have rising rates now, and the Fed's moving to the sidelines. A lot of the, the, the earning cycle is not going to be near as good going forward now that it's mature. So the bull camp, too, is left. So what are you left if you're not in a bull, you're not in a bear? I, I would suggest a bunny. And what the, what the bunny is, it's an animal that hops around a lot but doesn't go very far. And I think that's what we're in. I still think we're going to move higher over the next few years, but much, much less on buy and hold than what we've done up till now. The best of the bulls behind. Many things you can do in this. Uh, I think bunnies often happen in the, in the second half of recoveries once you reach full employment. They tend to have more inflationary and interest rate overtones uh, about them. Right. Um, and they also tend to be hoppy. So a uh, little market timing if the bunny hops up big, uh, coming back to risk off. If the bunny hops down big, going back to risk on, uh, using a little bit of that makes sense. Uh, overall, I think one way to deal with this is maybe to move away from the United States 
because I think much of the rest of the world is behind us in this recovery cycle, and they're not in the bunny market yet. They might still be more in the bull phase. I don't know if people would really want to consider the 2017, the year of the bunny. What do you think? What do you think, Pam? I don't know. It's the year of the rooster, but it's also maybe the year of the bunny. Who knows? I like that. Maybe we'll call him Jim Bunny Paulson. He is the chief investment strategist and economist for Wells Capital Management, helping to manage more than $350 billion. Well, corporate debt has been rising at a pretty fast clip. Consumers have been holding off and really have not been incurring as much debt, at least on a proportionate basis. But perhaps this is about to change. I want to bring in Ellen Zentner, Chief U.S. Economist and Managing Director at Morgan Stanley. She has been named to Bloomberg Best's list of top forecasters for the U.S. economy with more than 17 years experience as a Fed watcher. Ellen, thank you so much for being with us. Um, Why do you think that U.S. consumers are going to build their debt loads more this year? Well, I think uh, one of the things that we look at is when you expect higher income in the future, right, it tends to dictate how we spend today. Um, and the same can be said for revolving credit, credit cards. If you think a raise is coming, or in today's case, a tax cut is coming, um, you might be willing to carry more debt levels, higher debt levels today, with the comfort of knowing that you're probably going to be better able to pay that debt in the future. And so what we've seen is that when consumer confidence rises, and we've seen a pretty big rise in confidence since the election, uh, about six months later, revolving credit tends to pick up. Uh, and so we think that's going to be some of the dynamics that we see play out this year as consumers spend more in anticipation of the tax cuts. Do you think that's going to be a bad thing? No, I, I certainly don't want to see a return to pre-crisis growth rates in consumer credit. I mean, first of all, the demographic trends don't support that kind of return to that incredible pace of, of debt accumulation. But also, we've regulated away the ability of households to accumulate that type of debt or that level of debt burden, uh, sort of saving saving us from ourselves, if you will, with all the regulation that's gone into place. But we certainly expect a healthy pickup. There's a healthy certain amount of debt to carry. Um, and with tax cuts coming, better income prospects, consumers are heartened by that. The only risk there is if tax cuts are not delivered, right? But if they are, um, then we expect that to be reflected in a faster pace of spending and, of course, a faster pace of certain types of debt accumulation like uh, credit cards, revolving credit. Well, I'm glad you mentioned credit cards because I'm wondering if the picture for an equity investor, try to imagine yourself walking the aisles of a Home Depot or a Lowe's store and using your Visa or your uh, American Express or another charge card, is that the image that we should hold in our minds for successful investing in 2017? Well, I think, Pam, it brings up a great point because there are a lot of pitfall, pitfalls in the retail sector, right? And not all retail stores are, are doing well. Uh, and so one thing that our, our chief U.S. equity strategist, Adam Parker, likes um, is credit card companies as a play to capture that stronger consumer uh, without specific retail risk. Um, and so I think that that you know, that that could be a, a nugget for equity investors this year. We've also done a lot of work around where 
typically do consumers spend tax cuts? So rather than concentrating on does it benefit the low-income consumer more or the high-income consumer more, let's just concentrate on what products um, uh, benefit from tax cuts. And uh, ironically, we saw auto sales soar yesterday, and one of the biggest categories that garner do- those dollars when we get tax cuts is new autos. Not used, but new autos, new cars and trucks, motorcycles, other highly discretionary recreational goods. You mentioned Home Depot, you know, furnish, furniture and home furnishings. Um, and, and so home improvement stores could do well uh, in this environment. Uh, and travel, right? There's also a stronger dollar wrapped up in this theme. Uh, and uh, it, it has increased the buying power of American consumers. And so we've seen foreign travel by U.S. residents and just air transportation in general um, typically garner a lot of those tax dollars. Uh, and so that's we're really encouraged about about the, the those kinds of dynamics that might play out this year with broader tax reform. You know, I love that Pim goes to where are the opportunities for equities? And I'm thinking, wow, more debt. Let's think. Are the delinquencies going to pick up? And especially since we've already seen delinquencies pick up uh, among auto loans, you know, mm-hmm. how what are you looking for to determine whether the level of debt is unsustainable? I know a lot of people have come on this show and talked about how, you know, President-elect Trump may not not deliver on all of his plans that are that are going to be supposedly so stimulative. Well, I think one thing that we look at is uh, debt obligations uh, as a share of income. So, uh, you know, pre-crisis or leading up to the financial crisis, debt as a share of disposable income peaked at, at 135 percent pretty incredible. Um, and since that time, we've cut debt so much. And with incomes rising, uh, we, we've cut that back dramatically. Uh, and so we watch that very closely, right? We want to be able to see that households are carrying their debt burden well. We also want to look at the household balance sheet, how much of it is exposed to a variable rate. Because of course, when the Fed starts raising interest rates more quickly, uh, you know, historically, that interest expense incurred from the, the the balance sheet uh, has crimped uh, income pretty quickly and causes a knee-jerk reaction on the part of consumers pulling back. Um, What we see today is an unprecedented household balance sheet where only about 10% of it is subject to a variable rate. Think of all those mortgages that have been refied through the government programs or through organic refi into very low fixed rates. Uh, You know, that's the majority of the household balance sheet. And unlike pre-crisis, it's almost all fixed. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Ellen Zentner is the Chief U.S. Economist Managing Director for Morgan Stanley. Bring in Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist, to tell us what's going on in the market. And Dave, I just look at retail and it is a wreck today. Yes and no, Pim. I mean, it's an interesting sort of uh, contrast going on here. And I bring this up because, sure, if you look at the department store chains, they are taking quite the hit. Macy's down 14 percent. Kohl's down 18 percent. Both those companies coming out late yesterday with the holiday sales figures that were worse than analysts were expecting. JCPenney Uh, down 7 percent as well. Nordstrom down 8%. And and I bring this up. I was actually just looking at this for a markets blog we do here for the Bloomberg Terminal. I'm one of the contributors to the blog. The S&P 500 department store index is now down 14%, headed for its biggest loss ever. 
it is a component of the broader S&P 500 retailing index. And you want to know how that's doing? It's down two-tenths of a percent. So basically, what's happening is that the retailing index, the broader one, has Amazon.com. Amazon benefiting at the expense of the likes of Macy's and Kohl's and Penny's and Nordstrom. That stock's up. So it's actually helping to hold up the retailing index. And you can throw in while you're at it Netflix and Priceline Group in terms of today's performance. And what do those companies have in common with Amazon? You're talking about Internet-based businesses. So what's really happening here, it's another marker in terms of the broader shift that's going on in retailing. People don't want to go to the store. They want to go to the website buy what they want, have it shipped to the house yeah. or maybe to uh, you know one of the stores for pickup, but that's as far as it goes. And that's what's happening here. And we're seeing that play out in terms of the holiday sales figures. And a whole lot of retail stocks are down, no question. Nonetheless, it's more of a transitional story than a people don't want to shop story. You know, another part of this story is the dollar. And there was this incredible uh, strengthening of the U.S. dollar last year to the strongest level in more than a decade. A lot of people thought that this rally would only gain steam as uh, President-elect Trump's policies were implemented. I want to bring in someone who's going to cast some shade on that. Vincent Urella, FX strategist here at Bloomberg. You wrote a piece about the five ways the dollar rally may end if Trump's policies do not get implemented as expected. So walk us through this sort of path of doom. Sure. And good morning to everyone. Uh, well, I mean, five is a fun number, but there are quite a few ways, actually. I think one of the things that we need to look at is it's one thing for the president-elect to have run the table in the electoral college and, and won the election. It's another to run the table in the Senate and the Congress and enact all the policies, particularly in the first 100 days that he would like to do to stimulate the economy. One of the things that was outlined was repatriation of corporate profits overseas. We have something of $2.5 trillion that is available to be brought home it's meant to spur investment and economic growth, but in 2004, we tried this once, a tax holiday. Companies brought the money back. They paid down dividends. They repurchased shares. They streamlined their operations, and they actually fired people. So it, it, it actually hurt the U.S. Treasury and not helped. So, no, Vincent, I'm just going to ask you about whether we are at peak dollar. Because, you know, if we get a weaker U.S. dollar, if we change the po- – if somehow the strong dollar policy of the U.S. Treasury uh, changes or at least goes mute for a while, that's going to be very beneficial to U.S. trade. And it could put the kind of pressure that is necessary in order to get these trade negotiations on track because the one thing that you know emerging markets have is that their currencies are weakening, and that means their products are more attractive to U.S. consumers. Well, it, it is good for U.S. trade, but it tends to be good for U.S. multinationals, and those profits tend to stay once again overseas, and they're not brought back home necessarily to create jobs really here in the States. It actually creates jobs overseas. So, you know, one of the things that... that the That's Trump- jobs, but not the value of the dollar. I'm saying, no. is the dollar at a peak value right now? I, I would not be one to try to catch the falling knife, so to speak, and say the dollar's at a peak, but it certainly has has turned the corner um, since mid-December, and it's definitely on a downtrend, and we've seen it again get hit overnight. Um, there are a lot of factors working against it, not just the things that I've, I've outlined, but, but certainly that whenever you have a currency that's moved in a broad sense very quickly, 
um, it tends to run out of steam in reverse. So, Dave, uh, you were talking about Sears and Nordstrom's and some of these big retailers. How much in their equation does the dollar factor? Well, I mean, only to the extent that, uh, you know, we're talking about what does it cost them to, uh, say, import uh, the products they're going to sell. And by the way, I would take issue with the idea of Sears as a big retailer. It's the incredible shrinking retailer. I mean, the <laughs> I stock's, apologize. The stock's I'm up. Sorry. No, it's okay. I was in Florida. There are plenty of Sears still there. Well, still, but uh, you know, they, they just came out and said they're going to get rid of 150 more stores. Uh, they're selling their Craftsman Tool brand to Stanley Black & Decker for $900 million. That's why the okay. stock's up Okay, all right, today. but the others. So, okay, the multinational retailers. Does this matter to them? How much does this matter? It, it, it certainly matters in terms of their ability to uh, source products, you might say. And it matters, you know, more broadly, let's be honest. And I, I bring this up because we got results out of Constellation Brands today. You know, this is a company that's in the beer, wine, spirits business. Corona, uh, they, Corona and Modelo. Those are the two big So we're brands. talking about Mexico, and certainly that's kind of front and center when it comes to currencies at this point. And actually, their earnings beat analyst average estimates in Bloomberg survey for the fiscal third quarter. Here's the thing, though. It was all about tax advantages from reinvesting foreign earnings. And so, you know, so that's that sort point. of really front and center. And the stock's down in the wake of their results, even though, like I said, they, they beat estimates. I mean, it's one of the worst performers on the day in the S&P 500, down 5.7%. Right. Well, so, Vince, what are you looking for to sort of be a marker for how much more the dollar could potentially fall? Well, I mean, one of the things, uh, just a quick point on what Dave was saying, is that one of the one of the Trump policies is a consumption or a destination tax. If that is enacted, and essentially what that does is it'll say where, con where goods are consumed is where the tax will be applied. So if we bring product from Mexico, for instance, there will be a tax placed on it. It's the equivalent of a tariff. Raises the price of goods, raises inflation, uh, essentially will weaken, weaken international corporate profits, and that will weaken growth. Uh, that type of process is, is a quasi-protection of protectionist uh, amendment and, and would certainly weaken the dollar. Well, if the dollar gets weaker, does that mean that the Federal Reserve gets to normalize U.S. interest rates? Well, one of the things about the dollar, it's a sort of a back-of-the-envelope cal um, calculation, is that a 4% trade-weighted move in the U.S. dollar, either up or down, is equivalent to roughly 25 basis points for the Fed. So if the dollar would drop by 4%, that essentially loosens financial conditions, makes the Fed's job easier. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Vincent Signorella, he is a FX strategist for Bloomberg. He knows everything about currencies, and he knows everything about stocks. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks columnist. The description is that the United States under President Trump will abdicate its role as a global leader and there will be repercussions around the world. Here to tell us more, Willis Sparks. He is the director of global macro for the Eurasia Group. So, Willis, maybe explain that uh, description and what you foresee as being some of the consequences. Sure. I mean, we're talking about uncertainty. You were just talking about, you know, the uncertainty of what role Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump may play. That's that's a normal part of a transition. And we don't know how strong the secretary of state will be or which advisors the new president will listen to. But this is much bigger than that in terms of the uncertainty that's been created. We all know that Donald Trump is the first person ever elected president who has never served in government or the military. And frankly, there are a lot of people who voted for him because he doesn't have that experience. And that's fine. 
But the rest of the world is thinking, what does this mean for the role that the U.S. intends to play? And Donald Trump, if you take him at his word, a lot of the things that he said, his America first approach to U.S. foreign policy will be one which looks out for American taxpayers, the interests of American voters, without regard for the impact on broader stability around the world. In other words, the, the idea has been for a long time that U.S. presidents have an interest in creating a stable world because a stable world is good for the world's only superpower. Trump's formulation is different. Trump's formulation is the U.S. investing in stability allows allies and rivals to free ride off the U.S., and I'm going to go out and get a better deal for the American people. Okay, so given that perspective, let's take a little uh, look around the world at what the potential responses will be yeah. uh, from other world powers. What about China? What do you expect the response will be from China? <laughs> Well, China is trying to figure out how to interpret Donald Trump's tweets. They they take Trump <laughs> very we seriously. All, though? Absolutely, but and they're trying to figure out when when the the question is is North Korea close to being able to put a warhead onto an intercontinental ballistic missile that can hit California? And Trump says he tweets, "Not going to happen." If you're in Beijing, you're thinking, I wonder what he means by that. Does he mean that he doesn't think the North Koreans are smart enough to pull this off? Or does he mean that he would invade North Korea before he would allow that to happen? They don't know what that means. And allies also don't know what Trump's intentions are. You know, NATO allies in Europe, for example. So what you have is a lot of allies that are going to begin to hedge their bets on U.S. intentions. Yeah, but Willis, let me just push back on this. Sure. Let's just start with Europe, for example. I mean, if you can accomplish with a tweet or a speech an increase in military spending on the part of NATO allies, doesn't that come off as being a pretty shrewd move? Sure, if you can do it. Well, haven't the European, haven't certain European NATO allies already said that they are going to increase their contribution to their military budgets? They have said so, but they have said so in the past as well. They have not lived up to the obligations that they've set in the past, so we'll have to see what they do. But, you know, again, I'm not saying that this is all negative, but, but there is a lot of uncertainty here. And so a lot of allies are trying to figure out, well, will we get what we want from Trump if we promise to do more of what he asks us to do? And that's not clear. If Russia starts to, to, to play with Latvia and Estonia the way that it's played with Ukraine, for example, will the U, how will the U.S. respond? Will it respond as it has in the past or not? And if not, are we wasting our money? It raises a lot of questions for which we don't have a lot of good answers right now. The point here is not to vilify Trump or to suggest that everything he's going to do is going to be some kind of mistake. But he certainly has different assumptions about what role U.S. power should play in the world than pretty much all of his predecessors, and that's creating a lot of uncertainty in every region of the world among both U.S. allies and rivals. Although some uncertainty in certain regions, for example, in Europe, has not necessarily been caused by uh, President-elect Trump as Certainly. much as uh, the populist uprising there. I mean, a lot of people who I've spoken to are, are more concerned about Europe, frankly, than they are even the U.S., just because of the fragility, frankly, of the union uh, in light of the Brexit vote, as well as the Italian referendum uh, last year. What, what do you see happening there? 
Well, Europe has got so many problems. I mean, really, if you want to describe the risk for Europe, it's it's the sheer number of different challenges that European leaders are facing in a big election year in Europe. We've got presidential elections in France, followed by parliamentary elections both in the spring. We have elections in the Netherlands and Germany. We could have early elections in both Italy and Greece in 2017. The Brexit thing is only getting started, and it's probably not going to go very far because politicians in EU countries running for re-election have no incentive to to seriously negotiate with the British until next year. But the negotiations are going to take up a lot of time. Meanwhile, relations with Turkey are getting more complicated at a time when the migrant deal between the EU and Turkey is crucial for maintaining stability in an election year in Europe, avoiding another wave of the migrant crisis. Russia may be wanting to, to, to play some kind of undermining role in some of these elections, France and Germany, for example, if you believe that they've played that role in this country. So, yes, there are a lot of problems in Europe that have absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump or Barack Obama or the United States, but it is compounded by the fact that in trying to figure out how to respond to these challenges, the U.S. is no longer the predictable actor that it has been in the past. Well, Willis, is it worth noting that the United States maintains about 800 military bases in more than 70 countries? Sure, absolutely. I mean, that's, you know, Britain, France, Russia, they've got 30 foreign bases combined. It's a compelling argument for Donald Trump to say, why on earth do we allow countries as rich as Germany and Japan to outsource their security to the United States? And American taxpayers responded to that message. It is a very good question that deserves a very good answer. But in this period of uncertainty, we're going to see a lot of governments that are not sure how to make decisions based on the new environment until they have some better sense of what Donald Trump will and will not do in response to conflicts real and hypothetical around the world. So uh, this was some of these risks were highlighted in Eurasia Group's top risks for 2017. Going back, the top risks for 2016, which of them came to fruition? Well, I, you know, I mean, I think that what we tried to do this year was to draw attention to the fact that there's been a move uh, away from risk in the emerging market world back to the developed world. So I think, you know, we had a lot of focus this year on Europe. We didn't in the end, we did not believe Brexit would happen, but we knew it was going to be a close enough vote, and there was a high enough likelihood that we had done a lot of writing for our clients about uh, preparation for that possibility. Um, you know, I, I, I think that what we're seeing is a continuation of that and maybe an intensification of that into 2017. The risks are really focused in Europe and the United States much more than they are in the emerging market world at the moment. Thank you so much. Willis Sparks, Director of Global Macro at Eurasia Group, talking to us from New York. This is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.